What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Uh, oh yeah, it okay. starts recording now and you can start. Yeah, um, so I'm Ahsan Safanajad. Uh, I'm 27 year old, um, I live in Iran and uh, I studied artificial intelligence uh, as my master's degree and I studied uh, computer science in for my bachelor's degree. So totally unrelated to the topics that we are going to discuss tonight. Uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm an anti-imperialist. Mostly people uh, will ask me, what's your political leaning? Uh, are you left-leaning? Are you right-winger? Something like that. And I always tell them that first and foremost, I care about humanity. And as such, um, I consider myself anti-imperialist. Awesome, thank you so much. Um, so just to begin, we can start talking about the main subjects we'll be talking about with, with respect to Iran the continued conflicts between the United States and Iran, uh, as well as with Israel as a factor in there. Um, so just to begin, I, the first subject I think we can talk about is the pre-1979, uh, the pre-revolution scenario, and then we can go into the more modern situation. Yeah, I think that's a good point to start. Well, prior to 1979 revolution, the two countries actually used to be really close. Um, the Pahlavi monarchy in Iran and the Zionist regime in Israel, they had close ties with one another. And this, this sort of made perfect sense. This was a match made in heaven, uh, sort of, uh, because the Zionist regime uh, was always considered to be an alien entity in the Middle East. Uh, so it, it had many conflicts with the Arab nations in the region. Uh, 1941 Arab war, Arab-Israeli war, uh, the Suez Canal crisis, the Fedayeen insurgency in the 50s and in 60s, uh, you know, Lebanon war, you can, you can go on. There is a there is a list of all the wars that Israel had with Arab countries that your viewers can go and you know check out. It's, it's a long list. So as such, Israel was in dire need of an ally, and Iran would be the perfect choice because Iran was already a close ally to United. I shouldn't say ally. It was it, Iran was basically a henchman for United States, the vassal state. And so this sort of works perfectly because uh, Pahlavi monarchy uh, didn't, wouldn't exist after 1953 uh, if it wasn't for a United States coup d'etat that happened in 19, uh, 1953, uh, in which United States under the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower actually overthrew the democratically elected government of Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, after that, there was a common understanding between the Iranians, the uh, Americans, and the Israelis that they should uh, 
know, sort of prevent a rise to power by someone like Mossadegh, a, a figure who was anti-imperialistic, he nationalized the oil. So United States removed him from power, installed Shah, and uh, Shah was brutal already, but he sort of became paranoid, something like that. So he became extremely ruthless after that. The situation got really, really worse. In, in achieving their objective, United States and Israel established Savak. I mean, they trained Savak. So Mossad has a very pivotal role in sort of uh, oppressing the Iranians, the, the Iranian revolution. Uh, so, you know, considering that, that that's one aspect of the situation that there is this brutal secret police called Savak, which if you want to sort of, if you rank every secret uh, police state that existed, not police state, police force, that existed throughout the history, including the samurais in feudal Japan and the you know, knights in the medieval Europe, which I'm sure that they weren't known for their humanitarian concerns in interrogation and things like that. So I could still rank top six or seven, something like that. It was that brutal. You know, the, the brutality was uh, un unfathomable. So uh, just just to go back a little bit, because I sort of digressed, I got really into the details. Uh, the, the just to give you some sort of frame of reference as to what extent these two states collaborated with one another, uh, I can mention Project Crystal and Project Flower. In Project Crystal, the two countries agreed that uh, they should collaborate on espionage. Uh, this, in this project, uh, Savak and Mossad sort of joint force in order to spy on Syria, Iraq, and yeah, Egypt, Egypt. But later on, of course, it's sort of expanded from there and, you know, they spied on other nations as well. Uh, the interesting fact is that Savak is against this collaboration, but ultimately the political will sort of over, overwrote the, um, you know, the expert opinion. In yeah, in, 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 in doing that, and uh, Project Flower was a sort of military operation in which the Iranians and the Israelis tried to reproduce this American design missile that had uh, the capability of delivering nuclear warhead. So th these two are major, major sort of. Uh, military and espionage collaboration, intelligence collaboration, which shows you how deep these two regimes, the Pahlavi regime and the Zionist regime in Tel Aviv actually collaborated. They had this joint venture, 50-50% uh, joint venture called uh, the Trans-Israel Pipeline. Again, they collaborated on energy, intelligence, military, different aspects. Uh, yeah, th this was how intertwined these two uh, regimes were. But uh, after the 1979 revolution, the pro-Palestinian groups ca came into power. These groups were anti-imperialist and 
as such, they, they, they seized, for example, one of the things that they did was to seize the Israeli embassy and they gave it to the Palestinians. They renamed the street in which uh, the British Council, uh, British embassy existed, was located in, and they called it, uh, they renamed it to Bobby Sanders. And so sort of, you know, trolling the Brits and, you know, Israelis and everything. They cut uh, relationship with, uh, they cut the diplomatic relationship with South Africa, which was uh, an, an apartheid state. So, you know, it, it always, it is always useful to mention South Africa because people want to portray everything and say that, I don't know, the Iran being against the apartheid state in Israel is based on anti being anti-Semitic, right? It's an anti-Semitism that drives this, uh, this sort of behavior. But when you, when you say that, well, it actually happened to South Africa, people say that, okay, then the person who is taking those actions, this is actually coming from a place of sincerity. And, uh, you know, it's, it's based on anti-imperialistic nature of the movement. So yeah, the, the situation after that just only got worse and worse. Obviously, Israelis are trying to do everything that they can in order to further their agenda in the, uh, in the region. They are, it's, it's quite remarkable that these people couldn't actually uh, you know, conquer Palestine because what they are doing is ethnic cleansing and conquering, right? But they actually had the audacity to talk about the greater Israel, which includes parts of Iraq and parts of Syria and parts of Saudi Arabia. When I say parts of actually, for example, in case of Syria, it, it includes, I think, the majority of Syria, the majority of Iraq, which is, I mean, for 70 years, you have been unable to actually occupy the whole Palestine. You're still struggling with that. And you have the audacity to talk about, you know, the greater Israel, which includes other, other regions. Yeah. No, that definitely is uh, audacious on behalf of, of the Zionists, but I'm curious then kind of following it uh, after 1979, how the conflict has continued since then. And then to take it into the modern day, how uh, the conflict has been impacted by uh, the US unipolar world and now kind of the, the changing contours of that with uh, the Ukraine crisis, for example, and how this has led to, uh, I mean, all the different things that have happened from the United States invasion of Iraq, um, to the war in Syria and, and how this has led to this increased kind of, uh, uh, first you have, I guess, the conflicts between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and then it seems like uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel are sort of moving closer together over this long-term project from the United States to move the two together against Iran. So yeah, how has this evolved since then? Um, yeah. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to just answer the first part For of sure. it because I have sort of bad memory. And if it's okay with you, you just- For sure, yeah. Yeah. So in, in, with regards to, you know, bringing it to the modern era, well, I think the two very important phenomena that happened was the second Lebanon war, 
uh, which is called sometimes 34-day war by Israelis. And uh, I think Iranians in my country, we call it 33-day war. They call it 34-day war, we call it 33-day. Uh, but it, it's the same thing. It, Israelis try to sort of establish a dominance over parts of Lebanon. And they faced resistance from Lebanese force, which later on, I mean, they, not later on, they actually were Hezbollah, but you know, later on they became much more powerful. Iran, actually, the Iranian leader, Sayyid Ali Khamenei, he actually sent General Soleimani, whom you might know, he's, he played a pivotal role in defeating ISIS. Uh, so he's, he's sort of considered to be a legend in Iran. His popularity, his popularity vote uh, is something like 90%, something crazy. So uh, yeah, he sent this military general to help and fight alongside the Lebanese resistance forces this was the first, uh, the sort of the first major event that happened, sort of conflict that Iran actually moved against Israel. It's, it's really important. This was an overt attack, you know, a sort of overt military. Israelis were involved in the attack, right? And then the conflict of Syria happened in which they sort of played the game plan. They, instead of directly getting involved, they supported the uh, you know, Salafi Takfiri groups in the region in order to topple the government of President Bashar al-Assad, in which again, Iran got involved. Iran prevented that. Later on, we know that Russia uh, got involved a, a year after Iran and sort of stabilized the situation in, uh, in Syria, because uh, this is very important for people to understand. Uh, these forces, these Takfiri forces, were like feet away from the presidential palace in Syria. So they were really close in dominating uh, the Syrian government, you know, taking control of the Damascus, everything. Uh, and then you officially, officially would have the ISIS, you know, the Islamic State of, uh, you know, Syria and Lebanon, and I'm sorry, Syria and Iraq. Uh, so, I mean, Iran, again, got involved in that, and year after that, Russians got involved too. Uh, we know, when, when I say that Israelis got involved, because everyone know that uh, Americans were deeply involved in that. We know that from the emails of Jake Sullivan to Hillary Clinton, right, in which he, he says Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. Well, funny thing is that uh, uh, Israelis were actually, Israeli hospitals were actually, uh, you know, treating the wounded ISIS fighters there are reports of that. There is a video of Mehdi Hassan, and believe me, I'm not a sort of fan of Mehdi Hassan, but that interview is interesting because he talks to this ex-head of Mossad, and this person uh, clearly, blatantly, without any shame, he says that, yeah, we, we treated al-Nusra fighters, which, I mean, al-Nusra front, or Jabhat al-Nusra, 
uh, it was a rebranding of Al-Qaeda. So they were basically treating Al-Qaeda fighters. Uh, and, and they didn't have any shame in you know, declaring it publicly that they were doing that. So th this was the first, the first source of uh, two major events that happened and were really important. The other things that have happened uh, in, in this long conflict that, that has been going on for years now, uh, the situation has become mostly about espionage, intelligence operations, things like that. So, I mean, those two things were war. Iran fought in, in war with Israel, sort of with Israeli proxies. But this, the situation right now is all about espionage. Uh, you, the, their bases in Kurdistani region of Iraq got targeted, I think like a month ago, by the Israeli, I'm sorry, by Iranian IRGC aerospace ballistic missiles. They targeted their training facility in, um, in Kurdistani region of Iraq. And they do the same thing. You might remember the time that they assassinated Iranian scientist, Dr. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh. Uh, so th this is the sort of situation in which the, the, the thing is continuing. Um, the problem is that, uh, I mean, there is one-sided condemnation for the actions of Iran that are completely retaliatory. I mean, we know that, oh my God, during this last year, almost every week, Israel bombed Syria. So they are totally out of control and they are doing whatever they want. They are present in Azerbaijan, uh, the country in northwest of Iran. They are, uh, I think they have bases in Bahrain. So they have sort of tried to surrender Iran. You know, when, when the CENTCOM sort of backed on and we, we got that sort of policy that United States is going to pivot to Asia in order to contain China. Uh, is the CENTCOM went, in, in a way, they're still present, pretty much present in Iraq, for example. Uh, but as they went, it wasn't like that, okay, the aggression has stopped. No, Israelis have uh, filled their positions in the countries of the region. So yeah, in, in terms of, you know, some more modern conflict, that is going on between the two countries. It's all about espionage, covert operations, you know, gathering intelligence, uh, drone attacks, ballistic attacks, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And my next question was kind of on the on the same note of that, which was the United States kind of moving uh, uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia closer to one another, as we've seen with the new the Abraham Accords and kind of getting uh, more of the Arab states to support Israel and seeing this as kind of a continuation of the, the conflict with Iran, trying to put uh, more Arab states on the side of, of Israel and the United States to kind of continue this, this cold war in the Middle East against Iran. But really, it's, a, it's not a cold war. It's really a very aggressive war. So how has this, how has this developed? And then how has this led into the, the situation right now on the ground with the effects of the war in Ukraine 
leading to, as you said, more strikes in Syria, but in addition, uh, you know, enabling this growth of multipolarity that allows Iran to sort of act without the U.S. completely being able to respond. So, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that uh, prior to 1979 revolution, it was Iran that was United States laptop. And its job solely was to oppress the Arab nations in the region. But after the revolution, it sort of became the other way. So now the Saudi Arabia is acting as a laptop for United States. And they're trying to you know, sort of contain Iran, which is sort of funny because I, I never would have guessed that Saudi Arabia would have any reason to sort of oppose the 1979 revolution, you know, just because that regime that tried to sort of oppress you has now gone. So you should better your relationship with the current government, which is deeply uh, committed to, you know, Islamic value and you're an Islamic country, supposedly. So I don't see the reason why there should be a fight or war. But yeah, this happened for whatever reason. We knew previously that, I'm talking about prior to the 1979 revolution, that these countries, despite the fact that they claim to fight Israel, is sort of collaborating. Not collaborating, they're not really that committed to Palestinian cause. Let's put it that way. But yeah, as, as the things, uh, went on, Saudi Arabia become just more audacious by the minute, basically. And a very dangerous thing that happened was the presidency of Donald Trump, because Donald Trump did everything that Saudis wanted. Yes, there, his rhetoric was harsh. He would say things like, I'm milking them, something like that. I don't remember the exact phrase. So he was pretty rude to them, but uh, but Saudis liked it, and it's really interesting because they're now deeply opposed to Biden administration, which brings us to the current state of affairs, which is pretty pathetic, to be honest. Uh, if if anyone is con considering himself to be a an American patriot, you know, regardless of the anti-imperialistic things, morality of the things that you should be against the war. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about being patriotic, being nationalistic, you know, sort of putting America first. This is the worst scenario that United States could have experienced in the Middle East, because now Saudis are flexing their muscles on the United States. United States, the Biden administration demanded that Saudis would increase their oil production, but they're not doing that. So to, to integrate it to the Ukrainian situation that is now going on for some time. Yes, Sa Saudis have been basically trying to sabotage things for the Biden administration. And I, I, I was listening to this Israeli expert, and he was saying that they have demand, they have claimed that the only solution to the current 
sort of bad faith between the two countries for the Biden term to end. I mean, can you imagine that? The Saudis to become so, you know, again, audacious. I, mean, I know that I'm using that word a lot in this conversation, but it's, it's really interesting because it's a one products country. They just export oil. And even in the oil that they're exporting, one of the biggest facilities that they have are, I'm talking about Aramco. It is mostly being run by, you know, Americans, which is, I mean, it goes to show you how bad the situation is and how totally out of hand the situation is. United States, and Trump took it to the new level, but United States empowered Saudis in order to oppress Iranians. But now Saudis are in a sabotaging things. So this is a pathetic situation. To, to put it in the context of the Ukrainian situation, well, uh, we know that Russia invaded Ukraine um, and the, in the aftermath of that, uh, United States imposed a series of sanctions on, on Russia, uh, which totally disrupted the energy market in the global community. This is where the Saudis are supposed to move in, but they're not. In doing so, they are empowering Russia. Uh, and, you know, Russia is gaining momentum. Uh, ruble is sort of back to the place that it was. I, I believe that prior to the initiation of the conflict, uh, a ruble was worth one cent and 1.3 cents prior to the conflict. Uh, after the sanctions, I think now it is um, just somewhere around uh, 0.81 cents, something like that. So it, it has made a recovery. And what's, what, what has made this situation worse is that Saudis are saying that they are considering selling Chinese oil in Yuan, which would be detrimental to United States hegemony. So Saudis are not, uh, again, considering selling oil to Chinese in Yuan. Ruble is making comeback. Then they're refusing to, you know, uh, sort of increase their amount of oil production. And Russia and China is trying to sort of create this banking system. And by the way, Iran has already uh, sort of integrated its uh, messaging system, banking messaging system with the Russians, right? So the Russian messaging system is called SFPS, if I remember correctly. And Iran is called uh, Sapant. The Iranian one is called uh, Sapant. So these two are being now integrated, which is created an uncomfortable situation for the people in Washington. I, among many others, we believe that United States hegemony over financial transactions is actually way, way more impressive and more and more empowering, uh, way more empowering than its military capability. Because, I mean, if you are now sanctioned by United States, people wouldn't do business with you. For example, Iran 
is now sanctioned, right? A, a Swedish company, a Swiss company, I'm sorry. Swiss company has now announced that it is not going to sell Iran this particular type of bandage that is used to treat uh, the EB patient, that EB stands for epidermolysis blossa. It's a rare genetic disorder in which you get all these uh, blisters on your skin and in your mucous membrane. So that's your mouth cavity, your throat, your ear, and life becomes extremely uh, excruciatingly painful for you. And now they are refusing to sell that particular type of bandage to Iran it, for a disease that doesn't have any cure. So these people are, can, you can only make their life less painful. And that company is not going to sell uh, bandages for Iran. Why is it? Why is that the case? Well, it's because of fear of uh, United States secondary sanctions. So that creates a huge leverage. Not only you are going to be sanctioned by United States, but these secondary sanctions means that uh, United States is basically going to sanction those who dare to do business with you. And this is horrible. But the, the thing is that this conflict, this, this sort of apparatus that we are living uh, in right now, it is shifting towards a direction that is, as you put it, uh, goes to, towards a multipolar war, right? Because the other countries, Russia, China, and Iran, are now going to uh, sort of have their own banking system, which is going to oppose SWIFT. And by the way, uh, I was reading an article in yeah, it was the multi multipolarista. It's a very great, very good outlet uh, by Ben Norton, Benjamin Norton. And yeah, it, it said that IMF has be basically uh, owned up to the fact that dollars purchasing power, not purchasing power, dollars hegemony is declining. Um, Seven, I think, um, a few years back, seventy percent of all the global financial transaction were happening in dollar, right? Now it has become 60%. So you see 10% drop in the amount of the uh, transaction that are happening in dollar, right? And this is huge. That's one seventh of the total transaction that were happening before. And by the way, this, a lot of economists, they put it, when they talk about national debts that United States has, they, they use this phrase. They say that we are exporting our debt. The reason that United States is capable of exporting its debt and a country like Iran is not, is due to the fact that so many people are using dollar. So sort of the, the, the inflation that the Americans are experiencing it's actually sort of mellowed down and toned down because uh, other people are also paying the price of this, this sort of printing money uh, irrationally by Federal Reserve. So uh, from where I sit, um, this, this conflict, this empowering of Saudi Arabia in 
in current state which in which they have become sort of like a rebel they're refusing to help americans is going to only be detrimental for united states and by the way the coalitions that they are trying to build it's basically the equivalent of every guy every allow me to put it this way the the member states that are being chosen for arab israeli nato they are the equivalent of the people who were picked last in gym clubs so th that's the equivalent and they don't have uh, you know the legitimate power in order to want to oppose iran I mean, Egypt goes and participates in the meeting and then says, well, you know, the things are, the sun was in my eyes and things are not really good. Uh, I'm, I'm totally going to stay with you guys, but, you know, I'm sort of not available at this moment. So the, these countries, they can't do anything that, that is substantial. Yeah, it's just <laughs> the League of Losers. Well, that, that's a great name for it. Um, and I, it, it's interesting, too, to see that's a great description because to take another example, like all the countries that the U.S. sort of pressured into recognizing Israel under Trump, like Sudan, for example, their recognition of Israel now has led to a huge ongoing uh, protest movement and continuous uprising so that you see how unpopular this is with the people who actually live in these countries, these puppet governments that have no legitimacy whatsoever uh, that recognize and support Israel. So yeah, the League of Losers is definitely a good term for these sort of puppet states for the United States. Um, I'm, I'm interested as well in uh, how the, the ongoing talks, uh, the ongoing nuclear talks, the JCPOA talks kind of factor into this and how the they've been impacted by the Ukraine situation as well, and that they were kind of moving and then they seem to stall a little bit because of the Ukraine situation. So I wonder if you can tell us more about what's happening with those. So, so. well, let me start by saying that the Israelis have uh, said that they're not going to be contained by any agreement that is reached uh, by Iran and the P5 plus one countries, which is, I mean, really something because these we're talking about the permanent members of Security Council that have veto powers. And Israel is just blatantly without any sort of fear of any international backlash. Just says that it's not going to be bound by any agreement that is reached by those countries. And United States ambassador to Israel sort of agrees with them and says, go ahead, we, we're not going to do anything. Uh, that stops you, you know, sabotaging this. But uh, well, let me uh, let me first start by saying how how Iranian the talks in Vienna could actually be used in order to confine the situation in Ukraine and sort of use to punish Russia, because I think it is very important to know that. Again, I'm coming, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this from a perspective of being nationalistic, patriotic. I'm, I'm not talking about morality. 
if United States would have wanted to pressure Russia, what would have been the best course of action to allow Iranian oil to enter the market? So they, they could have uh, sort of controlled Russia. The, the sanctions would have been more effective, right? Because we're talking about energy. Europe is highly dependent on Russian gas and Russian oil. 40% of the amount of gas that is that flows to uh, uh, Germany comes from Russia. We have other dependencies. And if United States was serious about reaching a deal, and if they weren't uh, trying to be unreasonable in their demands, a deal could have been reached and this situation, the deal could have been used in order to further punish Russians. And by the way, again, this is very cold-hearted perspective that I'm providing here. I'm not really in favor of punishing Russians because I live on this, I have lived under sanction, uh, under sanctions and sanctions are brutal. Again, I, I mentioned to you how as I mentioned, and I have lived under sanctions and I know how brutal they can be. Again, Iranians are now deprived of you know, using medicine and they can't provide the medicine. So I don't want that to happen to any other country, Russia included. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned, it's I, I think. Yeah, go go ahead. Yeah, so the talk the talks are now in sort of state of stalemate, which I mean to me it doesn't make any sense because this could actually help United States further pressure Russia. So from the strategic point of view, it's totally unreasonable to do so. Uh, but to go. To talk about uh, what happened previously with regards to the JCPOA, uh, one, one common misconception about the Vienna talks is that it's, it's about signing a new deal with Iran. Uh, it is and it is not. It is mostly about reviving JCPOA, that's Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or commonly referred to media as Iran deal, right? So the deal is there. We're talking about reviving it. Why does it need a revival? Because United States under the presidency of Donald Trump withdrew from the deal in 2018 and then launched a maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Uh, Mike Pompeo, in, his, uh, in one of his speeches, I don't remember which one, uh, he said, 12 demands um, for to, to be included in the new deal. And these demands were basically capitulation. They demanded capitulation from Iran. But the, sh the sort of shocking thing for a lot of people, um, excluding me, I'm excluding myself from this because I knew that nothing is going to change, but a lot of people expected Biden to sort of join 
back and return to JCPOA, but he didn't do that. You know, basically the foreign policy of the United States never changes. The rhetoric changes slightly. So for example, Mike Pompeo said that Iran should stop proliferation of ballistic missile, which was preposterous. What do you guys expect us to defend ourselves with ballista and catapult? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, but now Anthony Blinken says the same thing, but in different rhetoric. He says Iranian ballistic missile program should be included in the uh, in the. I mean, at the earlier stage of the talks, he was saying that that Iranian ballistic missile should be included in the new deal. So again, the same policy is just a little a little bit of different rhetoric. The rhetoric has been toned down and it's sort of nicer. Uh, but from where I sit, Americans are not serious in pursuing a, a real deal within Iran. That's why they make all sorts of excuses which has rendered, rendered the talks, I'm sorry to say it like this, but the talks are useless. No party is achieving anything in these negotiations. And it's just one unrealistic demand after another. For example, just to give you some example, I don't want to you know, talk about abstract things and talk in general terms. Maybe getting into a little bit of detail helps people understand what I'm talking about. For example, we're talking about Iranian Foreign Minister, Mr. Amir Abdullahi, and talking about not being opposed to have direct talks with the United States. That's a positive signal, right? But then uh, Robert Malley, a special envoy to Iran, would come out and say, well, Iranians, I know that it's not related, so he declares it. He says, I know that it's unrelated, but Iran should uh, you know, free the American prisoners that they have. While the spokesperson for the for Iranian foreign ministry would say, well, we are ready to have talks, direct talks about that issue and that issue only. But it's, it's one unrealistic demand after another. You know, again, the same thing with uh, Iran regional influence to be included. They, they wanted Iranian regional influence to be included in, in the JCPOA. And they're repeating the same things. JCPOA was a very straightforward deal. Iran is going to put restrictions and limitations on its nuclear program. And in return, it's going to get sanction relief from the United States. Very straightforward. But now United States says that it's not going to remove sanctions from Iran. It doesn't make sense. It's like selling your car, but when the time comes for the receiving the payment, the person would say, I'm not going to give you money. Well, what's the, whole, the point of deal anyway then? Uh, the, the thing is that this administration is different from the previous administration. In, I'm talking about the Iranian side. The, uh, the export of oil is up by 41%. Iranian trade 
with the economic, uh, with Eurasian Economic Union, that's the EAEU, is up by 43%. So Iran is slowly being integrated back to the international community, right? But on, on the other side, there seems to be no urgency, no sense of urgency on American side. They're, they're totally unrealistic. I'm not really, at this point, I'm not really sure who are the policy, policy makers in Washington, D.C., because it, it shows a total detachment from the facts on the battlefield and the, the situation. Well, Iran, to, to integrate it to the Ukrainian situation again, Iran is now helping Russia purchasing plane parts uh, you know, by passing the sanctions, right? This is huge. And well, if, 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 if Iran was integrated into the world economy, then the United States could have threatened Iran and say, well, if you're doing business with Russia, then we are going to sanction you uh, again, you know, withdraw from JCPOA and saying that you're supporting a country that has invaded another country and undermined the, the right to self-determine of the Ukrainians, right? But again, there is this, I, I, I really like to emphasize and hit this point, hammer this point to home because American policymakers, they're totally detached from reality. Uh, just to, I know that I'm digressing at this point, but the NATO chief, Stoltenberg, has now come out and said that we, are, we should also target China. This is crazy. You can't fight in three fronts at the same time. You can't fight Iran, Russia, and China all at once. China is a major econom economic power. So it's a hub of the manufacturing, it's the manufacturing hub of the world, right? So that's, that's one leverage that China has. Uh, the Russian military has tremendous military capability in terms of the ballistic missile, hypersonic glider vehicles, HGVs. They're actually more advanced uh, than the Americans, which is huge. Uh, and Iran has a very strong grapple and tenacity in Middle East. So Iran has influence and it's, it, it's great in mobilizing forces in, in, through, all throughout the region, all throughout the Middle East. So you're trying to fight three guys, influence, regional influence, economic power and military capability all at once which is lunacy. There is no way that United States can come out of this the way that it was before. Yeah. Yeah, and with that, I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about the recent, uh, the recent attacks on the bases in, in Erbil, if you can talk a little bit more about that and how, how this kind of demonstrates that uh, in the past, this this wouldn't be tolerated. The United States would act, and yet there has not been the ability to immediately strike back um, because there there is this opening of kind of a 
uh, a new world where where the United States is not solely like a hegemonic power. So I'm, I'm curious what the reaction to this has been um, in Iran and, and what it potentially indicates for the future. Yeah, this is a very good question. Uh, this shows uh, that the dynamic is shifting and we have entered a new phase. Uh, we know that the Israelis are, are there, you know, there are reports from every side. I mean, the, funny enough, the Kurdistani officials, they, they sort of, uh, how should I say this? They reject the idea that Israelis were there, but Israelis have announced that they, they actually was pre were present there. The uh, American side has said that Israeli training facilities have been targeted in uh, Erbil in Kurdistan, and Iranians also claim the same thing. So everyone says the same thing, except the Kurdistani officials in Iraq. But as you mentioned, this is, a, this is very important because the Ukrainian conflict has created a situation that now it is more tolerated that a country like Iran would actually target Israeli, uh, Israeli positions and Israeli bases. Because right now, United States, uh, NATO countries, they're more focused on Ukraine. They are sort of concentrated on that issue. But there is also another reason. This administration in Iran, the administration of Dr. Raisi, they're actually really pro-resistance. So domestically speaking, there is more support for actions like this to happen. So domestically speaking, there are more reasons to target and you know, sort of push back against the Israeli aggression because I, as I mentioned, uh, Israelis are not only in Kurdistan region of Iraq, they're also in Azerbaijan, they're in Bahrain, in, in other countries. And, you know, they, they use those bases in order to carry out attacks in Iran. Uh, for example, this attack on the Kurdistani, uh, on the bases of Israel in Kurdistani region of Iraq, uh, was actually in retaliation to a to an operation that was carried out from that base, uh, in which they bombed a, a facility in Kermanshah. I think that's a province in Iran, Kermanshah. Uh, so they targeted that facility. The Iranians actually uh, one thing that is noteworthy. I should really emphasize on this point: Iran. Previously, uh, you know, sent numerous messages to these uh, to the Kurdistani officials that this needs to be stopped. So we tried through the diplomatic uh, sort of uh, channels in order to to you know, make them understand the situation, but uh, unfortunately, it resulted to a sort of military operation. The thing is that when they actually recalled the Iranian ambas uh, ambassador in, in Iraq, he blatantly said that 
we have warned you before and this is going to happen again if you don't boot them out of Iraq. And this has created a sort of, this effect, this has affected the situation in Iraq because Iraq right now is in sort of conflict itself, right? This is a political conflict. This is, I'm not talking about military confrontation with any foreign forces. Of course, they're fighting uh, ISIS remnants, but uh, I'm talking about the political conflict that is there, you know, the uh, the sort of conflict that happens over achieving, you know, achieving and receiving power, right? And this has, uh, this has affected that too. So this has become complicated. But yeah, I, what I can, again, go back to is the fact that what we are seeing right now is the West, is the sort of embodiment of the phrase, biting more than you can chew by the NATO countries, by the Western countries. They are now deeply involved in Ukraine. If they don't do anything about Ukraine, after what happened in Afghanistan, in which they totally abandoned their allies and Taliban just, you know, easily took over the whole country after the situation that happened in other countries, uh, in which they didn't support their allies. Again, the United States doesn't have allies. They didn't support their henchmen. If they don't make a standing in Ukraine, then it sends a huge message that NATO is useless, which is, which is the case. NATO is useless. NATO can only bomb Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Eastern countries. It cannot oppose a country like Russia. It cannot go against a country like uh, um, China. It cannot go against a country like Iran. You know, they have a playbook that they use. They first sanction countries, then they sort of take the things into the Human Rights Council of United Nations. And then they, again, use that uh, as a way to justify their sanctions, more sanctions, imposing more sanctions. And after that, they, sort of ask for the resolution that demands a no-fly zone over a country. And then they, they come to the, that country, they use their, uh, their air superiority in order to bomb the infrastructure, the military bases in that country. After, it is only after that that uh, they actually deploy troops in, the, in those countries. I, I missed this step. Uh, they they sign a deal with those countries and they demand that those countries should be demilitarized. That's after they put sanctions. So they put sanctions on those countries, they say, and they tell them that if you sign the deal, we're going to remove sanctions from your population, right? But it's it won't happen. That, that was basically the playbook that were, that they were trying to use on Iran. Uh, to go back to the topic that we were discussing previously. So this is, again, they have one template without any, you know, sort of nuance, without any new things that they add into this template. 
and they just use it for every country. You can't use that template for Russia. Russia is a nuclear power. Well, you want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Russian air forces, you can't do that. Uh, again, we, to going back to what we were to go back to what we were discussing, uh, sort of how how these conflicts has changed the current apparatus. I think more and more countries are beginning to understand that they should normalize ties with Iran, which is huge. I mean, despite the fact that we we see them go to Al Nahr and put on this ridiculous show, talk about how they are going to, you know, collaborate with one another and join forces. But then they invite Iranian foreign minister to their country. And they say that the relation between the two countries are brotherly. So there is a lot of confusion uh, with regards to what is happening. But I, I think that the everyone has, everyone now has come into realization that we have to live together. The countries of the region have to live together. And because, because quite frankly, Americans are leaving, leaving the Middle East. So this is the new situation. And I think Iran is going to push back uh, further against Israeli aggression. This creates a new sort of uh, influence, a region of influence for Iranians. The situation in Ukraine and the involvement of the Israeli regime, because you know that they have sent medic there, they have sent training uh, officers in order to, you know, train the Azov battalion and all these neo-Nazis neo and all these right, uh, far-right groups. Uh, in Ukraine, so Russia is not going to tolerate that. The reason that you know, uh, that Israel can come to, uh, you know, to go to Syria and bomb the country with impunity is because Russians are not really determined in order to push back against them. Russians have arguably the best air defense systems in the world. The S-400 is remarkable. But they sort of allow Israelis to come and bomb Syria because they have also a lot of financial trade that they are doing with uh, Israelis. So they don't want to jeopardize that. So it's, it's a tough situation, not tough situation. It's a tricky situation to maintain. And this conflict has changed that. So I think Russians are going to get more involved in Syria. Iran is going to get more involved uh, in, in you know, pushing back against all these uh, places that Israelis have infiltrated, and they are using that in order to carry out assassinations. Uh, how did they assassinate? Uh, again, to talk about one of the uh, one of the other examples that they uh, that shows their act of sabotage in Iran. They carried a drone attack on nuclear facilities in Iran. How did they carry out that attack? Well, if I remember correctly, and I have a horrible memory, so just forgive me, I'm sorry. But I think they carried it out from Azerbaijan. 
right? So they, they use these spaces to gather intelligence. That's one of the things that they do. And second, uh, secondly, they use it to carry out military operations, covert military operations. I don't know whether I should call it covert or overt because sometimes they walk a very fine line. They, they don't accept responsibility for those uh, for those operations, but I I think the situation the situation is tricky, and it's not as clear cut as saying that okay this this part is going to win, but what I'm going to emphasize and what I really want to want your viewers to understand is that the the escalation in the current state is inevitable. We, we are moving towards escalation and there is no backing down, which is, I mean, honestly, it is terrifying. I know that uh, the ramification, the consequences can be dire, but uh, it's how the things are shaping in, in this current state of affairs. That was a great, great answer, very comprehensive. Um, you went through pretty much every aspect of, of how this is going to continue to evolve. I guess my, my last question in wrapping up would be the, the future looking forward, like how does multipolarity change the situation uh, in the long run? Do you see a future where, as you were saying, you know, more nations recognizing and establishing uh, diplomatic relations with Iran, do you see a future where you can break the U.S. hegemony uh, over Iran, the U.S. control and, and uh, sanctions and trying to force Iran to follow the United States line um, and a future where it's possible to do this uh, and, and, you know, expel the United States influence from the region, basically, and have sovereignty for, for Iranians, but also for the Palestinians, for Syrians, for Yemeni people as well. Where is kind of, kind of this heading, I guess? Well, things are going to look bright, I think, in the future. Uh, the Iranian um, deputy of president, I think in economic affairs, uh, made a travel to Venezuela, no, I'm sorry, to Nicaragua. Uh, and he met uh, President El Comandante Daniel Ortega in the same uh, sort of journey, he met with Cuban president and Venezuelan president, uh, Mr. Maduro. And, you know, they, they sort of took this very iconic, sort of iconic photo in which they all have hugged each other and everything. There is a talk about um, creating and forming anti-coalition sanction. And this goes back to, uh, goes back to the events, I'm sorry, the, the chronology, I'm talking about the chronology. This goes, uh, this happened before the conflict started in Russia, in Ukraine, I'm sorry. Uh, this is very late here for me. Uh, this, this goes back before that, right? This precedes that. Now that the situation in Ukraine has moved toward this direction, and sanctioning Russia, this anti-coalition uh, sort of group of countries 
can have Russia on their side, which is going to be huge because we know that uh, Russia, Russians and Chinese have deep economic ties with one another. So essentially by moving, by Russia being included in this anti-sanction coalition, the center of gravity changes in a way that Chinese are going to be included in that too, right? So more and more countries are going to get involved. And this is a very interesting uh, situation because a lot of countries are actually fearful. What if we get on the bad side of the Americans? Then they can totally destroy us. Sanctions can destroy a country. Again, they have effects. I, I know a person through one, one other person that actually committed suicide because he couldn't provide uh, his family with basic necessities. This is the effects of sanctions. They are really, they're not to be uh, taken lightly. Uh, and what happens in Syria right now, for example, they have huge bread lines. Syria used to be a, a wheat exporter. Now it has long bread lines. So they have, they have a, a strong incentive in order to join this anti-coalition sanction. What is United States going to do to Syria that it hasn't already done? There, there is nothing that stops these countries. Again, going back to another example, Cuba has now faced six decades of US blockade. United States destroys these countries. And right now, as the situation has developed, pr prior to these things, Iran used to be a country that helped Venezuela, uh, Syria, other countries. But now, Russia is going to be included too. And, you know, for example, Iran sent uh, a very advanced drone to Venezuela. They supplied them in order, to, in order for them to be able to protect their sovereignty. They have sent them uh, FAJR missile, FAJR rocket, I'm sorry, FAJR rockets. Uh, and those rockets have been fired uh, within the time period of last month, right? Uh, within the last month. So uh, what I can say is that the, the arrogance and the detachment from reality is going to be United States doom. They, they constantly create enemies. And these enemies finally find out that they have a, a shared interest. They might not agree on everything, but they have a shared interest and they have this huge enemy that is going to destroy them. So they join forces. And now that the Russians are included, uh, it's going to make huge difference. Again, having ruble, ruble uh, as a current currency that is strong, but it's not tied to SWIFT. I mean, I have to be accurate. Uh, Russians have not been disconnected from SWIFT uh, at the time of recording of our talks. Uh, 
uh, but I'll but uh, from the direction that everything is moving towards, from the fact that Russians have now explicitly asked the unfriendly countries, as they put it, to pay them in ruble, I think in near future, they are going to be disconnected from SWIFT. So they're, they're going to be isolated from the rest of the world. Where would they go? They would join forces with Iran, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, China. Uh, Chinese are already included included in a in a certain way, but this is the point. As the transactions in a currency start increasing, the value of that uh, currency is going to increase in a way too. This is not a direct correlation. But there is a correlation there for sure, right? So we are looking towards a towards a world in which United States cannot impose financial blockade on any country. And well, I, I think that this world is going to be terrifying, terrifying for the uh, people in Wall Street. Uh, these people are highly depending on the fact that they can move their capital easily to different countries. But now they can't do that because the, the power of the, the purchasing power of the currency that they're depending on is decreasing. And this, is, this can be theoretically, and we don't know what happens in future. Uh, we don't know the un, we don't know the parameters that are going to affect the situation, all the parameters, but this can potentially be very good for the workers. Because if the capital couldn't move as fast as it used to move, uh, then the workers can demand higher wage, better job security, uh, better benefits, because I mean the, the problem, as you I'm sure as you know, is that um, uh, capital moves easily, but the workers cannot move as easily as the capital. So I, I think we are living in a situation and in a in a time that can be both terrifying and really interesting. It just, uh, we just have to wait and see uh, what actually happens. Yeah. I, I completely agree that it's definitely a terrifying time, but there feels like there are so many opportunities and things are potentially opening up. There's a, a chance to see what the future could hold. And it doesn't feel like it's the same kind of static, uh, the status quo under the United States has been in the past, there feels like there, there is some new uh, momentum uh, and change. And uh, I thank you so much for talking with me. I, I really, really, really appreciated listening to everything you had to say. And as well, your experience of, of living under sanctions in Iran, I don't think a lot of Americans really grasp 
what that's like. Um, a lot of Americans just think, yeah, we're going to do sanctions on somewhere. And, can, and I just shortly, can I just shortly mention a... Of course. Um, uh, story. I was talking to this person in France uh, and was talking to, to him about the sanctions and, well, he didn't understand that I can't use PayPal or, you know, buy things from Amazon and things like that. And it was really shocking to him. As I mentioned earlier, we can't, we can't import medicine. So not being able to use, use PayPal, it's not a big deal honestly, but his solution was really interesting because he told me that then why don't you use Alibaba? So I'm just trying to say that they are so unaware of the situation mm -hmm. that how things are, it's like that story that, I mean, I don't know whether it was true or not, but in France, there was this revolution and the servants told the queen, uh, I mean, the queen asked, why are these people uprising? Well, what do they want? The servants said, say, uh, they, they don't have any food to, uh, I'm sorry, they don't have any bread to eat. And the queen replied, well, why, why don't they eat cake? <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the knowledge an understanding of Americans, the fr people in France, in in all these countries that that actually uh, sort of uh, plunder the resources of other countries, they they don't have any understanding of the situation. So it's, they look you in the eye and they say, "Why don't you eat cake? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I think of that?" <laughs> yeah and, and it's it's very hypocritical and it it's incredibly tone deaf to hear from people who live with with excessive luxury and then go on to support these policies against countries like you mentioned here in the u.s we have this this problem with our as well the relationship with cuba like you mentioned it is very like you hear americans talking all the time about Cubans should do this, Cubans should do that, blah, 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 blah. And then we have the blockade on them for 60 years, like you said, and it's crushing their their entire life. Um, so it's it's brutal. But like you said, I think there's possibility to change. Uh, there's there's a, an opening of multipolarity that seems to be emerging. It's very inspiring to see, uh, especially with this, with this Ukraine crisis, there seems to be some new opportunities with the disarray that nato and the united states are in hopefully some some change will occur and hopefully it will allow a situation where the the brutality of the u.s sanctions against iran can be can be lifted so some you know measure of of, of life security can be granted to to you ever thank, yeah. thank you for your kind sentiments of course well, thank you again um, for speaking with me. It was great. I'm going to continue being in touch with you because I would love to kind of stay in touch and keep talking about these subjects. Uh, and I'll upload this and then send it to you as well. Thank you. Uh, it was great talking to you too. Great talking to you. All right. Take care. Goodbye. Take care. Bye. Bye.